So we're in the book of Revelation, and uh, we've looked at a few uh, lessons already. And um, today we're going to start in on chapters 2 and 3, the seven congregations. So John, the apostle, he's probably somewhere around 90 years old at this point. He was probably the youngest apostle when he was with Jesus. So now he's about 90 years old, and he's on the island of Patmos, and he gets this vision, and he decides to write it down. God tells him to write it down, and we looked at some of that vision. He's specifically told in verse 19, write what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So he's writing to the seven congregations, and he's specifically told, write what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So to me, I think what John is being told is, you know, some of this material is contemporary. It's for now, but some of it's for the future. Well, what parts of the book of Revelation are for now and what parts are for future? People debate about that all the time. But I think the seven congregations were the now, the contemporary. They were seven real congregations. They had seven real problems. John wrote to them, and we'll go through that over the next several weeks. The first one he writes to, the first letter, is to Ephesus. Ephesus was the biggest city in the province, the Roman province of Asia. We call it Asia, Asia Minor today, or if you went to Ephesus today, it would be in Turkey. And uh, Ephesus was a huge city. It was one of the biggest in the entire Roman Empire. It had tens of thousands of people there, and it was very cosmopolitan, very modern. It was wealthy. It was influential. Um, speaking of its wealth, let me, let me show you a couple pictures here. In the area of Ephesus, they found some terrace houses, and they excavated them, and they found, can you see the floor there? Let me uh, get my little pointer out. See that? Now let's see the next slide. Stuff like this. So in their houses were these amazing mosaics. The walls were frescoed. They had um, uh, dining rooms and bedrooms and kitchens and bathrooms in their houses in Ephesus. These people lived well. And, you know, make a piece of art today and see what it looks like in 2,000 years. I mean, that still looks good. That's amazing. And that's not the best that they've found from 2,000 years ago. But if you lived in Ephesus, if you lived downtown, chances are you were pretty well off. Ephesus was a good, wealthy, prosperous city. It was also a famous city, not just because of that. It was famous because one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. And uh, the only one still standing today is the Great Pyramid. But in the days of Paul, in the days of John, there was this massive temple there to the goddess Artemis, or Diana. The Greeks call her one, the Romans called her the other. Um, only one column remains of that temple. Doesn't look too impressive, does it? But let me try to draw you a mental picture of what this place might have looked like. And I'll show you some artist reconstruction of it. Next picture, if you don't mind. Isn't that pretty? 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet high. Those columns, 60 feet high. 60 feet. Think about that. How high is your roof at your house? 12 feet? Got a two-story house? 20, 25 feet? 60 feet high. So you walked into this place and it was like, wow. And that was the point they were trying to make. You know, 420 feet long, 
425 feet long. A football field is like 360 feet long, if you include the end zones, and only 150 feet wide. So you, you'd pluck this down in the middle of a football field, you wouldn't have had enough room. So Diana was her name. The Greeks called her Artemis. I've got a photo of one of the statues of her. You'll notice she's got like a stag by the horns. She was um, the number one deity of the area. In fact, she was one of the lead deities in the entire Roman Empire. Isn't that interesting? A woman god is the number one deity in a male-dominated society. Maybe our understanding of male domination needs to be adjusted based on the historical facts. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. She was the goddess of birthing. She was the goddess of the hunt. She was the goddess of the moon. And she was the virgin goddess, which I think is hilarious. Why I think this is hilarious is because one of the ways they worshipped her was with ritual prostitution. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm a virgin goddess. That's the last thing I'm going to want. These people, their religion didn't make a lot of sense. She was also called the Queen of Heaven. And I find that interesting because Mary is called the Queen of Heaven by a lot of Catholics. So I want to give you a thinking process that happened with me. I went to Ephesus. It's a beautiful place to visit. It's an amazing place. If you can ever visit Turkey, I'd recommend you do. And Ephesus is amazing. Maybe someday we'll do a tour there together. So I'm standing in front of the great library at Ephesus, one of the biggest libraries in the world, rivaled only by Alexandria and Pergamum. And in the entrance to the library are these statues of women. And the first thing I thought was, man, I see that at Catholic churches all the time. They all look like Mary. I thought, that's That's interesting. And there were no men statues, just all women statues. I found that very, very interesting that the statues would look like statues of Mary, almost like there's no difference to my less than Catholic brain. Maybe if I was Catholic, I would know better, but I'm not. Then we're walking around, we're getting lessons. And then I'm told, if you remember when Jesus was crucified, he's up on the cross and he says to John, behold your mother. And to Mary, behold your son. And the understanding of that is, well, since Jesus was dying, Mary needed new family. John needed a new mom. So he put them together. John now was going to take care of Mary, and they were going to be a new family. Well, John didn't stay in Jerusalem, according to church tradition. He moved to Ephesus, and he brought Mary with him. Now, a little later, I'm going to show you um, some cool images of the, Roman, of the big theater at Ephesus. But there was a smaller theater at Ephesus, too. Maybe it wasn't even a theater because they used it as the council chambers for the city government. It was pretty big. It would have held a few hundred people. But while we were there, he was talking about how half of the leaders of Ephesus were women. So this male-dominated patriarchal society we always heard so much about wasn't as unbalanced as you might have thought especially in Ephesus. Half the governing body was women. Their chief deity was a woman. They worshipped women. Then I remembered, wait a minute. Artemis was their chief deity, and they called her the Virgin Queen of Heaven. Mary lived there. I wonder if that's where that Catholic 
dogma came from. Made sense to me. I don't know this for a fact, but it certainly fits like a puzzle. One of the things, though, about ancient religions, and this is true of any ancient religion, worship in one locale was different than worship in another locale. Your beliefs about a certain god in one region would have been different. Their story about that god would have been different. Same god, different story. In um, Ephesus, the Diana that was worshipped was grotesque. It wasn't like that pretty statue I showed you. This is what they would have worshipped in Ephesus. Now, what you're seeing is her hair is braided by what looks like bulls. So her hair consists of bulls. Her body is made up of bulls. She's got a couple bulls standing on either side of her. And she's got a bunch of nodules in her chest area. What are those nodules, Steve? Well, there's theories. Nobody's for sure. Most common theory is that's a bunch of breasts. Yay. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to worship. You like that theory? How about the second theory? Bull testicles. Let's go worship Artemis. There's even another one. It's, less, it's lower on the hierarchy of beliefs. Uh, what do you call it? Beehives. The idea is whether it's testicles, breasts, or beehives, Productivity. That's nice. I like the other statue better. Not only was she grotesque, but worship of her was grotesque. As I already pointed out, ritual prostitution was one of the things. Her worshipers would be beaten by rods until the blood came out of their bodies. Then they would take that blood and offer it up to Artemis. Ew! You want to worship a god like that? Not me. There's other things even more disgusting. So disgusting, I'm just not going to share them with you. Suffice it to say, yuck. As yuck as, as, yuck as gets, yuck. And she was the chief deity of Ephesus. No wonder the gospel made such inroads. I mean, there was no competition. It's kind of like, take your favorite Mexican restaurant here in Tucson and compare it to Taco Bell. You know, you just take that Mexican restaurant to any city that's only got Taco Bell, people are going to understand what real Mexican food's about. So the, Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus. Thousands of people started flooding to the gospel. Compared to this, the gospel's much better. But remember, one of the seven wonders of the world was there. It was the temple to Artemis. The temple was also the banking system of the day. And there was huge industry of making idols to Diana, thousands of people are abandoning the religion. What's that going to do to the bank? What's that going to do to the temple? What's that going to do to the economy? What if somebody came in today and through their philosophy was going to shut down Raytheon, the U of A, and the Air Force Base? You think people who might be economic-minded might be a little concerned? Oh, yeah. Paul was threatening the entire city with the gospel. Here's what happened when he was there, Acts chapter 19. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, men, we've got a problem. I threw those words in. You know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. 
In fact, practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Well, at least he knew what he was saying. Got that right. Could you imagine the debate? What a stupid thing to say. He says that the gods we make aren't even gods. No. The nerve. The thing you made isn't a god. Kill him. I mean, how, how blind were these people? How stupid. Look what I made. I made a god. Ooh. People without God can go really stupid. There are no gods at all. Verse 27. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be desecrated. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Go, Paul. When they heard this, they were furious. And they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So, you've got to understand, these craftsmen weren't just a bunch of guys you never heard of. They were the movers and shakers of the city. They were the gym clicks of their city. They had influence, they had money. Everybody knew who they were. And when they spoke, people listened. So they start shouting, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon, the whole city was in an uproar. And the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. So I'm in Ephesus. We climbed the mountain behind Ephesus to get an overview of the entire city before we toured it. The arrow I put on this picture for you is showing you the theater. I'm going to show you another picture in just a minute. Hold, hold off on that for a second. You can't really tell the size of the theater at this point. But whatever these guys did, they got all agitated, got the whole city agitated, and people started flooding into the theater. Why the theater? Because that's where you had your meetings. Where else are you going to go? You want to talk to everybody? That's the place to go. I told you Ephesus was a wealthy city. I think it's that road you can see there, though it might have been the other one that when you're walking down the road, it's marble. The street is made out of marble. Not a marble veneer, but marble slabs. Could you imagine the prosperity, the wealth? I remember when we started shopping for marble countertops, we were like, what? They look good, don't they? Yeah, maybe not that good. Marble's expensive. Could you imagine paving Speedway with it? And again, not paving it, it's made out of marble. It was cool to walk on a marble street. It was awesome. Can't wait to walk on some streets of gold. All right, next picture of the theater. It's dug up. It's preserved. It's, they estimated 25,000 people could have sat in that theater. That's huge. So Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. But the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. I'm agitated. I'm upset. I don't know why, but I am. You know, mobs, you know, the mob mentality. People just, we already know they're worshiping idols. They're not the brightest bunch. Verse 33, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. 
He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. Is this guy brave or what? He's going to get up in front of a bunch of Diana worshipers who are agitated, and he's going to make a defense? Wow. Why don't we just call him a dead man? They wouldn't even let Paul in there. It's too dangerous. This guy, what, what a brave man he is. However, when the people realized he was Jewish, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. She don't look so great to me. They all shouted in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for two hours. Who does things like that? I've never experienced anything like that, and I never hope to. But they had passion. <laughs> they had zeal. I mean, great is Jesus. Great is Jesus. Great is Jesus. We could do that for a while. But for two hours? For 20 minutes? Which is good. Jesus said about the pagans that the way they pray they just keep babbling on and babbling on and babbling on. They think they'll finally be heard because they use a lot of words. He said, when you pray, don't be like that. God knows what you want before you even talk. But so they were doing what pagans do, thinking they were connecting with their deity. It would have just been maddening just to hear that noise for two hours. It, you know, I'd want to bang my head up against the wall by five, after five minutes. All right, so I told you we're going to read the letter to the seven churches, and the first one is Ephesus. We haven't even gotten to the letter yet. I wanted to give you some background on Ephesus. This was the city that John wrote to. So you know a little bit about its history, its contemporary history. But again, before we read the letter, this is the first to seven. And all seven follow a pattern. And I don't want to tell you the pattern every week when I'm teaching you about a new church, so I'll give you the pattern now. And for those who aren't here, they're just going to miss out. You can set them straight. Seven letters to seven churches in seven cities that use a seven-point outline, which I find quite interesting. What's with this number seven? Common, you know, the Bible starts off with seven days in the week. And now we're in the last book of the Bible, and it's all about seven, 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 seven. And then the last period of human history before Jesus comes back is a seven-year period. So sevens are significant in the Bible, but why seven? I don't know to hang my hat on, but I'm fairly confident. When you look at all the ways that seven is used in the Bible, it's pretty straightforward that seven deals with the concept of fullness or completeness or even perfection. It's almost like a, a saying, you know, do I make pizza? I make seven pizzas. Oh, you make the best pizzas. I get it. Do you own any property? I own seven properties. They're not really saying I own seven. They're saying I own some property. I think it's kind of like that. So here's the seven-point outline that the letters follow. First point, each letter is addressed to an angel. So that it starts like this. To the angel at the church of Ephesus, write. To the angel at church of Smyrna, write. To the angel at church, each one, just like that, follows the pattern. But as I've told you before, the word angel, I think, is a bad translation. Probably representative is a better translation. To the representative of the church at Ephesus, right. That's the first point. Each one is addressed to a representative. The second point, the city is mentioned by name. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, 
Sardis. To the angel of the church of Sardis, right. To the angel of the church of Thyatira, right. Follows the pattern. First is mentioning the representative. Second is mentioning the city by name. The third is a part of the vision of Messiah that John had is expressed. Remember at the first chapter, John says he turned around because he heard the voice speaking to him and he saw a vision of the Son of Man with his eyes blazing like fire and his feet like burnished bronze and his hair white like wool and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and in his hand he held the seven stars and he walked amongst the seven lampstands and he wore a robe down to his feet. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. For each of the seven congregations, a portion of Yeshua or Jesus is revealed. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, he who walks amongst the seven lampstands and has the seven stars in his hands says, and to each one a portion of him is represented, he says. Fourthly, the congregation's good deeds are mentioned, if they have any. Fifthly, the congregation's shortcomings are mentioned, if they have any. Sixth, a warning is given. And then seven, a promise is given. And this is the pattern to all seven congregations. So now that you know the background of Ephesus, the pattern of the letters, let's dive into the first letter to the congregation at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Open up your Bibles. Let me give you a moment to do that. I know I don't usually have you do that because I put everything up on the screen, but I'd like you to be able to follow along in your own scriptures. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can share. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the messenger or angel of the congregation in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. As I mentioned, the representative is addressed, the city is mentioned by name, and the Messiah is revealed as he who holds the seven stars and walks amongst the seven lampstands. We looked at the meaning of that just last time, so I'm not going to go into that. Let's just jump forward to verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. I know that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. To the messenger, to the city, a description of the Messiah, and now the good deeds. And it just so happens that the very first congregation he addresses, guess how many good deeds he mentions in a row? Seven. So I got a list of seven good deeds that he mentions right here. I know your hard work. So... Jesus is saying, you guys at Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, you work hard for God. Good on you. That's a good thing. And you persevere. You don't give up in this hard work. You hang in there. That's good. Number three, I also know that you can't tolerate wicked men. And number four, you have tested these men who have claimed to be apostles and have found them to be false. Good for you. Number five, you've persevered. First, in number two, they persevered in work. In number five, they persevered in their hardship, which is parallel to number six. You have endured hardships for his name. So their endurance and perseverance is mentioned at least three times in this list. 
Number six is you've endured hardships for, my, for his name. And number seven, you have not grown weary. Today, when you have to correct somebody and you have to maybe call them on the carpet, leadership gurus will all tell you, start with the positives. Tell them what they do well. You know, you're a really good drummer. One of the best drummers I know, but. <laughs> but, what, what's the buts? You start off telling them what they do right. And Yeshua did so. And now he's about ready to go into the buts. But before we go into the buts, I want to talk about a couple of things they did right. Number three, they can't tolerate wicked men. And number four, they tested false apostles. Those are two things we could do more of today. I think what he told Ephesus that they do right, we don't do right in the church today. I'm not talking about book of life. I'm just talking about the church in general. I don't think the church in general can be said we can't tolerate wicked men. We tolerate them just fine. And I don't think we test them to find out if they're true apostles or not. I, and I, I know this for a fact. Some of these crazy guys who are on TV, these false prophets who, who disgust me, they sell books and they ask for money and people pour it in. And they live in these mega mansions and they have a lifestyle that is just totally corrupt and all they got to do is get on TV, promise you a blessing and you'll send them money. Not you, the church that believes their nonsense. They're phonies. I know they're phonies. Why doesn't everybody else know they're phonies? Because we don't test them. We just hook, line and sinker. We swallow whatever they have to say. They must know the truth because they're quoting the Bible. You know, the devil quotes the Bible, too. doesn't mean he's right. So we need to do more as three and four. We need to not tolerate wickedness, and we need to test more. What is said in Timothy applies to these phonies. Timothy chapter 6, verse 5 says, They think that godliness is a means to financial gain. They're in it for the money. The Ephesians, however, put into practice Paul's advice. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians, test everything, hold on to the good, avoid every kind of evil. So the Ephesians, they're mentioned first out of the seven. They're the biggest city. It makes sense. They were doing a lot of good. And Jesus points it all out. But... He gives the list of seven, talks to them a wee bit, and then he even mentions something else they do good on top of the list of seven he gave. In verse six, it says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Yes, you can underline that. There are things Jesus hates. And when we hate the things he hates, that's good. And when we love the things he loves, that's good. Jesus loves Jewish people. So what does he think of anti-Semites? Jesus hates wicked people. So what does he think about people who love them? And on and on the list goes. He says he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Good on you. Does anybody know what a Nicolaitan is? Exactly. Nobody knows. 
There's a little historical data on them. I found it. I had to look for it. And there wasn't enough for me to fully know about the Nicolaitans. Um, believe it or not, some people think this is the cult of St. Nicholas. Not the Santa Claus St. Nicholas. He comes hundreds of years later. But they actually think, I don't believe this myself, okay? Because the Bible says, I am to give people the benefit of the doubt. And do not receive an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses. So I don't believe this. But this is a school of thought that some people hold to, so I have to share it with you. They think that the disciple Nicholas, who's mentioned in the Bible, became a heretic and these people followed him. So it is the cult of St. Nicholas. I don't believe that at all. He was a man of God. That's all the Bible says about him, and that's what I'm going to believe, and I'm not going to besmirch his good name because somebody in history thinks it's his cult because of the similarity in the name. I'm not doing that. But that is one belief. It's interesting, though, that the Greek phrase, let us eat, is Nikolaos. In the Roman Empire, one of the most well-known activities was people eating together, kind of like today. But their eating was almost always ritualistic. It was done in front of an idol with meat sacrificed to an idol, almost always with an orgy and some sort of other perverse behavior. So their feasts were not wholesome feasts. On the other side of the spectrum, Christians feasted together, and the Bible calls those love feasts. Not orgy feasts, but actually where we love one another and love God. We didn't get drunk at our feasts. They got so drunk at their feasts that it's believed. They, they dug up these big urns. I don't know what else to call them. Big urns, multi-gallon urns, in these places where they held these feasts. And people are saying, what are those urns for? You know what the most common belief is right now about those urns? They call them vomitoriums. A place where the people who are eating and drinking too much could vomit so they could eat and drink some more. Just to give you an idea of what their practice was like. Well, imagine you're a Christian holding your feast. What kind of culture might others try to bring into that feast based on what they're familiar with? So you really got to fight the fight to keep your feast pure. Some of these guys were sneaking in. Nicolaitans. Here's what Clement of Alexandria says in the Nicolaitans. Clement of Alexandria was a theologian from the second century. So he would have um, written contemporary within 50 years, maybe 100 years at most. So he would have probably known exactly what these Nicolaitans were. He says this about them. They abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. Their teaching perverted grace and replaced liberty with license. Oh yeah, we follow Jesus. He died for our sins. We can do whatever we want. He won't hold our sins against us. Oh boy, did they have that wrong. They perverted the grace of Jesus. You know, a section of Jude comes to mind when I think about these guys. Listen to what Jude wrote. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They're wild waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, 
for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires, and they boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Irenaeus, pastor in France. It wasn't France then, it was Gaul, around the time of the other guy I just read. Here's what he wrote about the Nicolaitans. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is plainly pointed out in the Apocalypse of John as teaching that as a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed to idols. You Ephesians, you've done good. You hate that, Jesus said, so do I. You've done so much that's right. But, verse 4, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. They lost their way. Even though they were doing great work for God, and they were abstaining from impurity and all these bad practices, they drifted. And I understand it. It's like the frog in the kettle. They lived in a horrible society, and they just kind of, their love for Jesus went cold. So Jesus gives them a warning in verse 5. He says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember, the lampstand represents the church. He's telling them if they don't straighten up, he's going to take their church out. He's going to shut their doors. You can't be a church anymore if you don't straighten out. Verse 7, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I wonder if Jesus sent a letter to Book of Life Community Church, what it would say. Think about it with me. What do we do good? What do we do right? What would he praise us for? It would be a fun exercise to go home with your spouse and make a list. What, what's good about Book of Life? And then make a list of what's not so good. And if my name's in the list, start over. <laughs> you write your own list about you, not about me. <laughs> After the warning comes a promise. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, you don't know this because of our culture is different. I'm in Pergamum, which is a church we'll be talking about when we get to it. And I was standing at the ruins of what they believe was the temple of Zeus. I love those two words together. Ruins, Zeus. This is good. And in the courtyard, the courtyard was called Atimenos. If I were to translate that into English, it would be the word paradise. He just says, I will give a right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, the Timenos of God. There's the false temples, there's the true temples. And in this courtyard of Zeus, coincidentally, was a tree. It was a big tree, healthy-looking tree. And there were a bunch of white ribbons tied to the tree. And I asked my guide, why are there white ribbons tied to the tree? He said, ah, there's some festival that the people do that they tie ribbons here. And I'm thinking, that's very interesting. I guess they think it's some good luck charm or some memory thing to try tie white ribbons to the tree in the former temple of Zeus. But it made me think of this passage. 
that he who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree in the paradise of God. So in my mind, I see a temple courtyard, I see a tree, but it's the tree of life. Zeus is destroyed, his religion is destroyed, he's a false god, he's been exposed. Everything the Nicolaitans worshipped was false. They've been exposed. Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus, but those of you who overcome, you're going to enter the real Timonos, and you're going to eat real fruit from a real tree that grants eternal life. That is so cool. They were praised for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans, those who ate in sin. They're therefore offered to eat from the tree of life, just the opposite of sin. Not in the temple of the pagans' gods, but in the paradise of God himself. Now I asked you what holds true for them. Some of it holds true to us. We need to hate wicked more. We need to examine the phonies more. Wonder what's good about Book of Life. Wonder what's bad about Book of Life. But I think the promise also holds true to us. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That wasn't just to the Ephesians. That's a promise to us too. We need to be overcomers. Those of you who are my Facebook friends, you probably saw I posted a video by Mandisa on my site called Overcomers. And it really cheered me up. It was a very encouraging song. So if you're not familiar with it, visit my Facebook site and just listen to it. And I hope it cheers you up because we're the overcomers too. Oh, there might be some Nicolaitans amongst us. I don't know who they are. But most importantly, we've got to figure out what we do right and do more of it and what we do wrong and repent of it. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, I ask you to open our hearts and to open our minds to give us humility and insight. Because despite all the wonderful things the Ephesians did, the wrong was enough to lose them their church if they didn't repent. And it could be the same for us. Lord, has our love for you grown cold? Has it become something of a routine thing that we take for for granted? I fear it may be so. And if so, Lord, I pray you would show us that you'd wake us up. Or if there's something else that you would show us, wake us up. Lord, we want to be a lampstand in Tucson. We want to spread the good news of Jesus. There's no Artemis here, but there's plenty of paganism. Help us to be a bright, shining place to win souls to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.